And so what I do in this new book is try to provide a better map for navigating happiness that introduces a third dimension. And so if you imagine taking that chessboard in front of you and pulling out mountains and valleys so that you now have this sort of three-dimensional topographical chessboard, this third dimension that corresponds to the mountains and the valleys, this is really what I argue is pulling the strings of our happiness. This is what actually is responsible for the deeper well-being we feel, whether or not we've got that gain and pleasure on the two-dimensional uh, perspective. And so the question becomes, what is that third dimension? Expanding possibilities, the mindset zone. I'm your host, Anna Malikian, and my mission is to support individuals and organizations to increase their impact while avoiding burnout. If you want to work smarter, not harder, I can help you. If you want to go from burnout to full engagement, let's talk. Reach me at Anna, A-N-A, at mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. You can also access all the episode notes, links, and other amazing resources at mindset.zone. Today, our special guest is Ryan A. Bush. Ryan is a thinker, a designer focused on building better systems, better people, and a better future. As founder of Designing the Mind, Ryan's central purpose is to provide wisdom, education, and to expand human potential. He is the author of several books, including Designing the Mind and his newest, Become Who You Are. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Anna. I'm happy to be here. Yes, and I was really intrigued with your new book, Become Who You Are, that made me think in many different ways what I absolutely love and I add to have you here in the mindset zone because of that. And one of the things that you really provide a different way of seeing is around the topic of happiness. So tell me a little bit about how you go on in defining happiness. Yeah, it's great to hear the book resonated with you. And yeah, happiness is it's a big topic. It's one of those words that I feel like we've gotten desensitized to because it's just used in so many different ways so often. And so what I do is basically break down happiness in terms of different dimensions, right? And so we've got the simplest dimension, which is pleasure and pain. This is the most shallow, basic kind of form of happiness. And we we pay a lot of attention to it when we're crafting our lives. And so I represent this dimension as an x-axis, like on a coordinate plane. So you got pleasure on the right, you've got pain on the left. And naturally, we want to go towards pleasure, right? But I introduce a second dimension here that I think when most of us get a little older, we start paying attention to more and more, and that is a loss gain dimension. And so sometimes we will sacrifice pleasure in the moment in order to achieve some kind of long-term success or gain in our circumstances. And so I think of this as the Y axis, and you can picture a chessboard sitting in front of you. 
the X and Y axis. And, and we're using this as a map to navigate our lives and our happiness. We're going around saying, how can I you know, maximize some pleasure here, sacrifice pleasure in order to get some gain? And it seems great, right? The challenge is that I think it's a faulty map in the sense that it doesn't always correspond to our actual happiness, right? People will have all the success and pleasure that they could ever imagine in life. You know, some people win the lottery and, and what they end up finding is, well, I'm, I've got more pleasure, more success in my life than ever. And yet I still feel empty. It hasn't really delivered that deeper happiness. And similarly, some people will lose what seems like everything and their life should be ruined. And they end up saying, actually, this has given me a new perspective. My life is better than ever. And so I think the problem is we have these experiences that teach us this is not all there is to happiness. And yet we continually fail to learn from them. We keep using the same faulty map to navigate our well-being, even in the face of evidence that that's not how it works. And so what I do in this new book is try to provide a better map for navigating happiness that introduces a third dimension. And so if you imagine taking that chessboard in front of you and pulling out mountains and valleys so that you now have this sort of three-dimensional topographical chessboard, this third dimension that corresponds to the mountains and the valleys. This is really what I argue is pulling the strings of our happiness. This is what actually is responsible for the deeper well-being we feel, whether or not we've got that gain and pleasure on the two-dimensional uh, perspective. And so the question becomes, what is that third dimension? Now, I draw from a lot of sources to pull this together, but the ancient Greeks talked about, for one, they talked about this state called eudaimonia, which was a much deeper kind of happiness than the sort of superficial pleasure, pain kind of consideration. They also talked a lot about virtue, which sounds like a kind of outdated preachy term to us today, but that's not necessarily what it has to mean. It's not all about moral purity. Uh, it can be about your personal signature strengths. And these ancient thinkers argued that virtue and eudaimonia are our personal strengths that we're exercising in our lives and the deepest form of happiness. We're closely interlinked, right? The more virtue you demonstrate, the happier you are in the deepest sense, the less virtue and the, the least happy you are. And so this virtue, or we might say admirability dimension is what I argue is this third dimension that's really responsible for a deeper kind of well-being uh, underneath the surface of our external circumstances. Let's press the pause button here. And because there is a 10 of things here to unpack so I totally agree with you with the term happiness that is being overused to the point of losing meaning. And I always uh, think about Martin Seligman, the, the father of, of modern positive psychology that uh, I, I think in one of his media appearances, he always says something like, that he never wanted the titles of his books to have happiness, but his publisher company always convinced him that was the way of bringing, bringing people to read the books. Um, but he has a much more holistic view of it when we read his work, that I know that you are also very familiar with his work. And uh, even in the view that how positive psychology arrives to the masses is a lot of very simplistic way. Positive emotions, 
negative emotions. That is, I think, what you are zooming in in that first uh, uh, X dimension between pain and pleasure. So we move away of the pain towards pleasure. We move, let's have more positive emotions and less negative emotions, and then we are happy. And this is just one of the factors into play. And you, the first thing that when I was reading the book and you introduced the other dimension, it makes totally sense, the loss and the gain, because we always can think about the famous research of the marshmallows when they showed to the kids the marshmallows and told them, if you don't eat this marshmallow, when I come back, I'm going to do something, I will be back in a moment. If you don't eat this one, uh, when I'm out, you will have two of them. So delay gratification, the gain, right. and the ones that managed to delay the gratification afterwards, in average, were more successful than the ones that just ate the first marshmallow. So it's really interesting that you explained very well with these two, uh, two dimensions, that and people, yeah, we get it. But then you introduce the third dimension. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest problems with talking about happiness is that people use it to mean every kind of positive feeling and to treat that like it's the ultimate end game in your life, the ultimate goal to strive for, I think would be a huge mistake. I think there are certain types of happiness that we should pay less attention to, or we should only use as a means to an end of the deeper kind of happiness. And so when we talk about happiness in general, we just lump it all together instead of making some of these really important distinctions. Yes. And in positive psychology, really the better word that is well-being in general, they are speaking about well-being, what to, and it's more, much more holistic way. But I love this. And I think because you are a very fascinating person in terms because you are not, you didn't study psychology in the regular way that many other people study psychology. You study right. as a tool of to understand yourself and to understand the world. And your back, academic background is in design, correct? Yes, that's right. Product design. So that I think brings that the perspective and innovation in many ways of another way of looking to the problems. So you see things in a, in a three-dimensional way, in a, a spatial way, more than in a flat way. Yeah, I, th I think that captures well the unique contribution that I try to make to these conversations. My creativity was a big part of my identity and what I wanted to do in my career. And that's why I ended up concluding like academia, I don't think would be the best fit because it would force me into some really rigid ways of thinking and wouldn't enable me to really explore all the creative possibilities here. And so what I do in my work is I take in all of these disparate sources, some of them academic, some of them not, some of them ancient philosophical questions about the good life. And I'm I'm a synthesizer. I integrate them together and, and piece these theories like this together. And very often it does, and I think should take a visual form. There's something about that that connects in our brains much more clearly than just a linear presentation of words. Yeah, it's a big, big part of it. Yes. So let's keep unpacking this because I think this can be very educational 
and helpful for people listening to this conversation. And I really want to make sure that wherever people are, they are taking something out of it. Because yes, some people are so stressed by their day-to-day -day and the rush that they are that uh, if we ask them, how do you feel? They have some difficulty in even identifying how they feel at the moment. Yes, if it's heart pain, they will know that. But if it's in the somewhere in between, they is it's tough for them to articulate their feelings. And at that mm -hmm. stage, be able to identify where you are in that uh, first dimension of pain and play pleasure can be a very good and helpful thing because yeah. they're starting to create that differentiation and seeing that nuances in their feelings. And at the same time, then they uh, uh, can be helpful at that stage, but then they start to see the limitations of it. So why, for instance, do I have to study art or spend so much time doing this thing? It doesn't bring me any immediately sense of pleasure. Why I'm doing this? Why I'm doing this project or putting a Lego set, set all together or a craft that I want to give a, a jumper or a, something as a present to somebody or doing a scarf? Why I'm going over these things that are monotonous? Two, and that is where the second dimension enters of the gain or or the loss, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah. Definitely trying to achieve that long-term gain, even if it's not as fun in the moment. That's the second dimension. But even this one very often fails to deliver in that sense. Because, again, can be helpful to a certain stage, but then we start to see the limitations of it. Because, okay, we can study art to get a good job and to start to make a good income, to get a, a nice house, but then we have to work more to get more things. And that doesn't bring happiness. And then people feel like, oh, what is wrong here? I went with the promise, if I had this, if I uh, have done this project or if I did get this promotion, then I will be happy. Now I got the promotion and I'm not happy. Now right. I have a big house. And I'm not happy. And that is where the other dimension comes into play. Exactly. And ideally, if we if we were all operating according to this map, and I think a deeper kind of wisdom, we would be planning out our lives in terms of this third dimension from the start. And so that it doesn't mean that we shouldn't sacrifice our pleasure in order to achieve something in our lives, but we should do it because it's going to bring us up in this third dimension of virtue or admirability. So instead of saying, what what would be the successful thing to do? Should I go to school and study hard? Or should I move to an island in another country? Instead of saying, like, how can I be as successful as possible? I think we need to start asking, what do I value? What do I 
admire myself most for doing? What are my greatest strengths? And which path will enable me to bring out those strengths to the highest degree? So it may sometimes end up being that you should pursue the sort of, quote, successful route, and you should do the the thing that makes you more money or gets you more status. There will be other times when that's completely the wrong direction, and you need to give up your fancy job and your big house and and go to another path that brings out more of those personal strengths. And so using this as a map for sort of navigating your life, I think will much more reliably lead you to actual deep happiness. Love that. So let's go into this three dimension a little bit longer, because I think yeah, that is the the secret sauce, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a lot of what your book is about and the title takes us to become who you are because living this virtue is becoming who we are what are our strengths correct tell me a little bit more about this yeah so at first it seems very paradoxical become who i am i already am who i am um but you know there is the you that is actually being brought out through their, through your behaviors. And there's the you that's found in the unique combination of values and, and impulses of admiration. When you see someone do something that you admire uh, and you sort of build a list even of all the people you admire, all the traits and behaviors, that's that's ultimately adds up to another kind of you, the, the you of your values, of your potential. And so becoming who you are means turning the actual you of your behaviors increasingly into that person that you would most admire and working your way up that mountain until you you essentially are living in exactly that way or as close as possible to the way that you would have the most admiration for. And so following those impulses like a compass saying, what do I admire myself more for this or that, right? Should I be in this position to bring out this strength that I pride myself on or that position? This is this is really the question. And a lot of it comes down to those values that a lot of us are not very aware of and haven't really inquired into as much as I think we need to. And, and this goes to the ancient wisdom of the jewel in the mud. All of us have a jewel, and but discover with so much mud that part of the work of personal development, of tapping into our human potential, is taking that mud out of um, life and circumstances and the education and systems put on us to uncover that jewel inside of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Abraham Maslow talked about an acorn and an oak tree and how each of us starts out as this kind of acorn that already has all the DNA, all the blueprint needed to become that oak tree already from the start, even though it's not there yet, it still has it etched into it. Uh, yeah. And so and so we're very much the same in that these values of who we are to become are already etched into us and in our DNA and our brains right but it's it's not easy to navigate the path of actually getting to where you are bringing those things out and you are living them instead of just admiring admiring them outside of yourself so how can we go about discovering what are their that those strengths and virtues that can guide us i offer a few sort of exercises for beginning this process of course it's an ongoing process but one of them is like I suggested, just writing down that list of people you admire most, whether those are people 
in your actual life, historical figures, fictional characters, whoever it is, write it down and write down specifically which traits you admire in those people. Because it's not going to be everything. There's no perfect people. So you have to really drill down into the traits and you need to build a comprehensive list of these things, these behaviors and traits, and and maybe even add some organization to help you keep at the front of your mind, what are those things that I value the most? Another approach is to take a survey of your own strengths that you have already cultivated, which are often the best to sort of double down on. Martin Seligman, you mentioned earlier, he's got an excellent survey of signature strengths on his website. You are speaking about the values in action. Correct. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah. the signature strengths questionnaire. And so you can take that. It'll tell you what your top five signature strengths are. Of course, this is it's still going to be imperfect. It doesn't know you perfectly. And that's why asking people who know you really well is another great approach. What do you think I'm best at? What have I always strived at since I was a child? But you, you might actually be surprised what they tell you. And taking all these approaches to build kind of a comprehensive list, even just asking yourself, what am I always best at? What do I feel alive when I'm doing? These are all really important things to integrate. And then you can take all these values and strengths, put them together and and sort of use them as a roadmap for where you should go next. A lot of the time, um, you know, I have different advice for someone who is, say, struggling with depression, which is essentially very low in the valleys of of this well-being scale in the third dimension versus someone who is doing pretty well. They're fine, but they're not fantastic. They're not sure where to go next, because at that stage, it often comes down to crafting your virtue domains or your work, your relationships, your communities, saying, how can I get to a place where I'm bringing out more of that courage, that creativity, that humor, right? Whatever it is that you're best at, bringing out more of it is going to be better for your well-being. Love it. And I love this differentiation that is so important because when people are in with depression or other so-called, or we call them mental illnesses in the psychology world, and the rules of the game are a little bit different than when a person is in an okay land and want to go improve and build from there. So tell us just, and I know that we have a limited time here, but let's speak because in the book, you also speak about your own journey with depression. Let's speak a little bit about that and then about the other situation. Yeah. So really, I share this. uh, For most of my life, I feel like I was very largely pretty content and had a pretty high self-esteem. And it wasn't until several years ago when I was actually writing my first book that I had this sort of mental health crisis of my own. Uh, You know, it always happens at the most ironic times when I'm writing a book, helping people avoid these mental struggles. And I'm at the time, confused at the fact that I'm going through them. But it it came to make sense after the fact. You know, I was in a position where in my work, I was part-time now because I was trying to write this book. So, um, you know, I wasn't as involved. I wasn't as included in the workplace. And my role had shifted away from the creativity and the vision that I typically thrive at and into kind of a mundane engineering drafting role that I really wasn't. I also had coworkers that were... I'd taken a, like one one in particular took like a great dislike to me from the very beginning and actually ended up diagnosing me with a disorder. And it was, it was 
a messy situation. And so it it put me into this position where I was questioning my own virtues. I wasn't seeing evidence of my own strengths, both in work environments and in interpersonal spaces. And that gave me the firsthand experience with this thing, this mechanism in our brains that I think is regulating our moods based on what we see and, and observe and evaluate in ourselves. And, and so that sort of lowered me down this scale. You know, you mentioned that different approaches are needed for if you have mental illness versus if you're higher up on this scale. But ultimately, what I am arguing in this book is that it is a continuous scale. Yes, you'll need to adopt different strategies, but I essentially fell down into the valleys of virtue during that period. And that's why uh, my self-esteem went down and, and I got mildly to moderately depressed for about nine months to a year. And it wasn't until after that experience, the next year that I was able to reflect and make sense of it and really piece together a lot of this research that I had been studying for a decade and a half. And, and it, it finally all clicked into place in, in the form of this theory. Yeah, it become more, become more real and experiential. And I, I like to underline an important thing here because you are a person from very young that always had this desire of personal development and, and you did the work. You are a person that you are self-aware from a young age and you've been doing this work of reading, of doing your personal work for a long time. And even with all of that, you still fell into depression. Yes, I think it can it can really it's something we have to all be vigilant of because de depression, I argue, is a you know, it's caused by identity failure. It's not some kind of chemical deficiency. It's it's more complex than that. It, it's when we fall into a place where we are not for one reason or another able to see our own strengths and see ourselves as a valuable, competent, lovable person. And and so I do think it is possible, especially if you're missing the the important pieces of this. I had a lot of good tools in my sort of mental vocabulary that I think helped me from getting more depressed. I certainly wasn't seriously depressed. I wasn't for a, a single moment suicidal or anything like that. But and I think a lot of that's because I had studied cognitive therapy. I did know on, on many levels that my thoughts were not reality and my beliefs about myself were temporary and not uh, really true. And I think that's a big part of what helped me through that process. I think having a loving partner at the time was a big part of what helped me through it. But ultimately, I think we all, we can't get complacent in our lives when things are good. We have to always be asking, how can I move up that mountain? How can I bring out more and more of these virtues? Because when you stop doing that, that's when it gets dangerous. Yeah. And the, the important also, you already had done the mental fitness that help you a lot recover from from where you fall into. And I think one of the problems that we have nowadays in our society is that the depression is affecting younger and younger kids that don't have the life experience and the tools to deal with all the storm that is up to them. And it's a big challenge of how can we help them learn those skills when they are down in the valley. Yeah. And I agree that, how do you say, it's almost, yes, it's, it's not either or is and, because yes, there is a continuum from depression to well-being, 
And at the same time, there are tipping points. It's almost like yes. the, te the temperature of boiling the water arrives to a tipping point that then become the vapor, the gas, and it changes the characteristics. It's still HO2, but it changes the, the characteristics and the, the behavior of it. And I think when people are really in-depth into depression, please, anybody listening, ask for help. There are good resources out there and uh, you don't have to stay stuck there. And sometimes the bravest thing to do and the more helpful thing to do is ask for help from people around you and for the organizations and the, uh, even no profits and things that are out there that uh, are there because they know that this is a, a tough journey, but it's possible to come out of it. Oh, yeah. Very great metaphor with the water and, and fully agree. In all of my programs, I tell people, first things first, if you're really struggling with severe mental challenges, seek out some one-on-one -on -one support before you go any further with this. Yeah. And I, in terms, my background is psychology. And when I was studying mental illness and the, the chemical imbalance in the brain and all those things, the image that I always find more helpful for me uh, is, are you familiar with the Gestalt psychology, the images of um, uh, uh, the classical one is the two profiles looking at each other that if you look to the black of the image, you see the two profiles. But if you see that as the foreground and look to what is in the middle, you see uh, a vase is the right. face and the two profiles. And I will make sure that I put this in the show notes for people to have the visual. If they are familiar uh, possibly with the description that comes uh, the, the image will come to your mind very easily. But if you are not, please go to the show notes. Mm -hmm. And the way that I see, if you can imagine that image, if you focus on one element, on the dark of the image, you see two faces. If you focus on the white of the image, you see an object, a vase. And the way that I see the chemical imbalances uh, is... The, the vase is the body that is, is there, but there are the other elements that are the psychological elements, the social psychological elements that represent by the profiles, by the face. And by changing one, you are changing the other. Right. They correlate with each other. They affect each other. You cannot change the line of the profile without changing the line of the vase. And the... Um, what we eat, what are we exercise, uh, what we think affects the neurochemistry of our brain. And of course, taking an antidepression also affects the neurochemistry of the brain. My, I think we have to use all the tools that we have, but never forgetting that everything is interrelated here. Absolutely. We're dealing with complex dynamic systems. We're changing one thing, we'll change others. And, and often these are feedback loops where one thing affects another. I, I do think the, the fact remains that some leverage points will be more effective than others. My understanding of the data on antidepressants is that uh, for all the side effects that come along with them, they are not more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy, some of the other methods that I offer in this book. Uh, some some people would disagree, but that that's sort of 
the data to me looks really bleak on certain approaches. And so I think we need to recognize that that correlation is not causation. And the yes. fact that your serotonin may be lower, which I do think is probably true in, in depression, it doesn't mean that if you just artificially boost that, that it's going to solve all of your problems. Yes. And this, uh, I think in many ways, the behavioral and psychological approaches are more uh, precise in the way, in the way that it reflects in the, our neurochemistry, because if by changing the, the, our mindset, our beliefs, you know, our identity, our beliefs in the way that we see the world, there is an immediately, uh, when we have that insight, immediately we feel better. It's incredible mm -hmm. how quick that change happens in our brain. And with typical, the, the, <laughs> People that went over uh, antidepressants knows how long do they have to take until they start to see the effect of things. And if one doesn't work, they have to try another medication. It's a more blunt right. approach. But for anybody out there, use whatever it works for you, knowing that a more holistic approach will be possibly more, more beneficial in the long term and in a sustainable way for be able to really focus on the things that allow you to have a great life in the sense that you are speaking of the virtues of the things of our strengths that help us to create a better world. Absolutely. So where people can go to learn more about your work and about your book? I would go to designingthemind.org slash becoming. You can put that in the show notes, yes. but you'll you'll know about the new book, which should be available for pre-order any day now. Uh, and it also will, uh, I'll send you a couple of free books, the Psychotex Toolkit and the Book of Self-Mastery, which is sort of a quote compilation and commentary. So it should be a, a lot of good stuff and you'll get on the email list and, and know all the future stuff too. Yes, because there is, you have a ton of resources that wherever people are in the time they are listening to this interview, if the book is out, go and get the book. If the book is not out yet, go and get all the freebies that you get on the website. And please, re I will put it in the show notes, but repeat here for the listeners if they want to go it's immediately now. Yeah, designingthemind.org slash becoming. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Expanding possibilities, the mindset Thank you for listening. And remember to follow this podcast. And if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. That really helps us spread the word about the Mindset Zone. Also visit Mindset.Zone. Yes, instead of dot .com, is dot .zone. There you can find amazing resources and more information about my speaking and how I support purpose-driven individuals and organizations increase their impact while preventing burnout. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world.